0: Blair. Yes, sir. Well, good morning again. If you have your scripture, if you have your Bible, will you please open it up and we will be reading from Psalm 130. We're up to Psalm 130. So if you are able, will you please stand out of reverence to God's holy and inspired word as it is read this morning. Psalm 130, this is God's word, a song of a sense. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. I want you to think for a moment of the highest you've ever been and the lowest you've ever been. Now, maybe you're like me and you immediately jump to emotional and spiritual thinking of that. But right now, just for a moment, think physically. What is the physically highest place you've ever been and the physically lowest place you've ever been in the world? Perhaps you've been as low as the Dead Sea. You've done a tour of the Holy Land, gone down to the Dead Sea, which is 1,400 feet below sea level. Maybe you've done some mountaineering. Maybe you've even done something like Mount Rainier which is uh, 14,000 feet above sea level, or even uh, Denali up in Alaska, which is some 20,000 feet, or even the, the highest one not all, Everest. If you've done Everest, please talk to me. I'd like to hear that story. 29,000 feet. I've never done anything like that, but one time I did do a rainforest canopy zipline tour in Panama. Now, I don't know if it was really all that high off the ground. I know we were up in the mountains, I don't know how high off the ground we really were, but it felt really high, and maybe that's because I didn't really trust the the quality of the harness and the ropes that were being involved here. I was like, has anybody inspected these or looked at them? Okay, no, here we go. Just zip you now. If you think of our planet as having some pretty extreme highs and lows, well, then you'd be right, right? There's about a 56,000 feet Difference in elevation from the highest point of Everest to the lowest point, which is the Mariana Trench in in the ocean. But to put some other perspective on it, uh, a scientist named Neil deGrasse Tyson actually says, if you were to shrink the earth down to the size of a billiard ball, it would actually feel to the human finger smoother than a cue ball. Those differences really aren't all that much. When you look at it from that kind of perspective, the point is simply this depth and height are much more personal and relative to our own experience. When I was growing up in the youth group, our youth pastor did this trick game thing where they would actually have a volunteer blindfolded uh, stand on a board and two people would lift the board up, and you have the person, the volunteer, would be having their hands on the shoulders of the people who are lifting the board. And the idea is we're going to lift this board high off the ground, about five feet off the ground, and you're going to jump off. Okay. I don't know why I'm doing this, but okay. But in reality, because you're blindfolded, you don't see what's happening, they lift the board about eight inches off the ground, but they get down real low. So your hands are on their shoulders, your hands go down like this. You feel like, oh, I'm high off the ground. And so you jump off the ground thinking, i got a four-foot jump. And really, it's a six-inch jump, and you fall on your face, and you make a fool of yourself. This is fun, right? This is what you do at youth group. Come to youth group. You should come, yeah. We'll be at the Averill's tonight. Um, we don't do that kind of stuff. But you have this, this perspective. This is that of, of what is real height versus what is real depth, physically, but also spiritually, emotionally, mentally. This is really even more true in spiritual and emotional heights and depths. Some things truly are hard to quantify and to measure. Pain, suffering, trials. But just because they're hard to quantify, they're hard to measure, they're hard to rank on any kind of scale, they are experienced deeply and really. How do you rank a cancer diagnosis versus a job loss versus a Family, the loss of a family member versus a marriage in trouble versus a, a child that we can't seem to understand or get to. All different levels of pain and suffering and anguish. But to try and rank them or understand which is worse than the other is, is, is a losing exercise. But we feel them deeply internally. Psalm 130 is, of course, is part of these songs for the road, part of the psalms of ascent. This collection of psalms for God's people that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem as they went up for the high holy festivals of the year. They're called the Psalms of Ascent because again pilgrims would literally be ascending as they traveled because Jerusalem was the highest point in Israel. No matter what direction you were coming from you would literally be going up in elevation to go to Jerusalem. But so much more profoundly than that they are traveling up towards god up to meet with god up to see god in a sense by going to the temple the place that god has made his presence known and to be with his people but if you ever when we read through in the point of doing this summer sermon series as we're looking at all 15 psalms of ascent you would think oh well the people are going to worship god these are all going to be happy songs these are all going to be joyous songs these are all going to be how great is our God and how wonderful it is to be a Christian or a Jew in the you know, thousand years before. But they're not. There's a pattern again in the Psalms of, of, of these Psalms. A Psalm of lament, a Psalm of crying out to God, and then a Psalm of hope. And it's repeated five times throughout the entire 15 Psalms of the Songs for the Road. But throughout all that, As we repeat that cycle over and over again, it's not just a carousel. It's not just the going round and around and coming back to the same point. There is, overall, an upward trajectory, an upward momentum. Yes, we're repeating this cycle, but as we go through over and over, we are heading upward. They begin with a believer crying out to God from far away from Jerusalem. And they end with believers offering praise to God in his temple courts. That's where we're headed when we get to Psalm 134 in a few weeks. And so these are travel songs, full of beautiful imagery, meaningful expression, divine wisdom for the journey. They fully express the life of the believer, the whole life of the believer. But in a very real sense, Psalm 130, <clears throat> excuse me, Psalm 130 is all of this, all by itself. It's kind of the entirety of the songs of ascent encapsulated into one. Psalm, one short song. It starts in the depths and it travels to the heights. In the midst of suffering and anguish, God not only promises relief, but he promises plentiful redemption. Sometimes our prayers may be too small. God not only promises relief, he promises plentiful redemption. We're going to talk about that phrase, plentiful redemption, in a moment. At the end of The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf tells his hobbit friends, as he is departing from them, his task is done and it's time for him to go. He says, I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are in evil. I Love that line. And here in Psalm 130, we have the full spectrum of crying, of crying out to God in four profound ways. We have a crying out to God, a cry for help, crying out to God, a cry for forgiveness, crying out to God, a cry for waiting, and crying out to God, a cry for hope. So let's go through these one at a time. First off, we have in verses one and two, we have a cry for help. Eugene Peterson, in the message, he paraphrases verse 1 of this psalm like this. He says, help God, the bottom has fallen out of my life. The psalmist here is writing from a place of severe pain, distress, affliction of some kind. He's writing from the bottom. But from that place of suffering, the psalmist goes to God with it. He takes his suffering, he takes his pain, he takes his anguish, he takes the reality of that the bottom has fallen out of my life, and he says, I have nowhere to go with this but to God himself. I'm taking this back to God. But as he does that, there's no need for him to soften how things seem to him. There's no need for the psalmist to put on a brave face before God. There's no need for them to go to God and say, it's kind of it's not ideal, and no, it's okay, it's okay. It's just, it could be, could be a little better. No, the psalmist goes to God and says, the bottom has fallen out of my life. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. The lowest place I can imagine, the deepest part I can imagine being, that's where I am, and that's where I'm coming to you, God. The psalmist is honest with God about his situation. When we encounter suffering in our life, we have a few options. We can try to minimize it. We can try to say that the suffering isn't bad or really isn't there at all. And this is perhaps more of a Zen, Buddhist, Eastern religion type approach. The problem isn't evil. The problem is that we just don't understand. We see things, but it's not real. Or perhaps we can go the other extreme. We can overemphasize it. We can say something like, our suffering, the suffering I'm experiencing right now, is the worst suffering that any human being has ever experienced in the history of humanity. No one has suffered like I'm suffering right now. So and therefore, there's no point in sharing it with anyone because no one could possibly understand, because no one's gone through what I'm going through. That's the other extreme. Or maybe we, could, we can internalize it. We can just bury it deep within ourselves, emotionally and mentally speaking, never truly opening up with anyone about it, God included. Or we can do what the psalmist does. We can take our suffering to God because God cares about us and He cares about our suffering. This psalm is modeling for us how to consider our suffering. When you find yourself in the depths of woe, as we sang earlier, whether personally, in your family, at your work, in ministry, whether because of your own sin or because of the sin of someone else, this psalm shows us how to take all of that to God. In verse 2, we get two requests from the psalmist that God would hear the voice of the psalmist. Bigger than just the words. Have you ever gotten in trouble from an email or a text because the tone that you intended to send was not received by the person? And if you would just set it If if they could have heard you say it, they would have interpreted it entirely how you meant, but because the nature of email and text, they misinterpreted what you were trying to say. The psalmist has that idea in mind, not with texting, of course, but he has that idea in mind. God, I need you to hear not just the words that I'm speaking, I need you to hear the tone of my voice. I need you to hear the emotion that is being conveyed in what I'm saying. Twice ask for that. Corey Ten Boom said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Have you ever used the phrase, or something to this effect, I feel like everything is falling apart. I feel like everything has just come unhinged. It's all coming off the rails. Why do we use language like that? Why is that kind of phraseology so Familiar to us. And if you haven't said that exact thing, you've probably said something along those lines. And when I say it, you go, yep, I get it. I think it's because as J.R.R. Tolkien, I'm going to quote Tolkien a couple of times this morning. He said, he said this, uh, he said, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature is at its best and least corrupted. It's gentlest and most humane. Is still soaked with the sense of exile. There was Eden. Genesis 1 and 2, in the first part of 3, is very real. Not just poetic figurative language, it's real. And we long for that again. We long to go home in that sense. We long for Eden. We long for the way that we were created when everything was working as it ought when everything worked together as it's supposed to, what the Bible calls shalom, peace, everything working together as it's supposed to work, full integration, everything working as it ought. But of course, the root of the problem is sin. Suffering is a result of the fall. We experience suffering because of sin. Sometimes it's because of, again, my own sin that I experience suffering, sometimes because of Our own individual sin. Sometimes it's because of the sin of other individuals in our lives. Sometimes it's because of sin on a larger scale. There's a band in about 20-something years ago called Lit. They had a line that said, It's no surprise to me, I am my own worst enemy. But to deal honestly and fully with suffering, we must deal with our sin. Which leads to the second cry of this psalm. This is a cry for forgiveness that we see in verse 3 and 4. Just as was suffering, in dealing with our own sin, the psalmist is open and he's honest with God. There's no bargaining attempts. All right, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll never do it again. There's no minimizing his sin, going, all right, God, I, I know I broke a rule. Is it really that big a deal? Is this really a big deal? It's, it's not a big deal, right? It's a small one. Yeah, okay, I've broken a few rules. I've broken several rules, but really, is it that big a deal? No. The psalmist doesn't do that. No bargaining, no minimizing, no blubbering. The psalmist recognizes in this rhetorical question of verse 3 that in our sin, we cannot stand before God. If you, O God, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We are doomed. As it says, as Paul writes in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what's the answer? It's what Blair read for us earlier. We need to cry out to God for mercy. We need to be like the tax collector in that parable that Jesus told of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Remember, how did the tax collector pray? He Prayed, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's interesting that Psalm 130 comes where it does in the collection of the Psalms of Ascent. More towards the end of the line than the closer to the beginning. Again, the Psalms of Ascent are all about drawing to God, drawing closer to God, coming nearer to him. And one of the things that we learn in our Christian walk is that the closer we come to God, the more aware we become of our sin. The more aware we become of the depths and the significance and the severity of our sin. And the more aware we become of our great need for God's mercy and forgiveness. We have assurance of forgiveness. Knowing we have been made right with God. When we do confession of sin and assurance of pardon, it's not that, okay, if you confess well enough, then the then that assurance might just might apply to you. The assurance is real, the assurance is, is for certain. We confess our sins because we belong to Jesus, and therefore that assurance of pardon is exactly what it says: assurance. Be sure. You can be sure. Martin Luther, before he got a hold of the gospel again, never was sure. He hoped and he wished and he did everything he could to try and make it so, but it wasn't until he fully understood justification by faith, the just will live by faith, that he knew, I am surely forgiven. Whether I know to confess all the sins or not. We have assurance of forgiveness, of knowing that we have been made right with God. Not because of our own efforts, but because of God's work. And so because God hears, because God cares, because God forgives, we're able to do the third thing, just to wait in God. And that's what verses 5 and 6 are. It's a cry of waiting. As Tom Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part. I don't like waiting. I know as a culture, we don't like waiting. We're all about faster gigabit internet and Amazon next day or same day shipping. If I'm at Publix and I have to wait for more than one person to check out in front of me, I start getting antsy. Again, we we I told you before, we as our family are preparing our house to sell so that we can move down closer to the church here. And so that means a lot of projects, a lot of finishing things up, And a lot of trips to Lowe's. And a lot of trips, not not a few trips, to the Lowe's return desk. Because I bought too much, I bought the wrong thing, whatever. Now as quickly as Lowe's will help you find the thing you might want to buy, as quickly as they'll help you get through that checkout line and out the door, you get in that return line and they're not in a hurry anymore. There's usually one person working there. And I don't know if that person drew the short straw or doesn't want to be there or whatever, but they are not in a hurry to get you your money back and take the thing back. But how are we supposed to wait? I say all that to say I've had a little bit more practice than I would have cared for in waiting. How are we supposed to wait? What is our part in that? From the first stanza, we cry out to God from our suffering. And from the second stanza, we cry out to God for forgiveness forgiveness. And we remember that we're forgiven and there's no gap between us and God. But when we get to the waiting part here, what are we supposed to do? Well, the psalmist gives us a picture. He paints this picture of of a watchman. Then the watchmen were the people that would sit on the walls of the city. They would look out and they would declare to the city, to the army, to the kings, if there's trouble on the horizon if an invading force is coming, if another army is marching in, if there are bandits or marauders trying to sneak in, they were the people who helped the nation of Israel or whoever walls they happen to be on be prepared. They would help the people be prepared for what might be coming. And I would say this back to you. If you are in a season of waiting, if you're in a season of waiting right now, If you're waiting on God to do something, you've been praying for something to happen in your life, you're in a season of waiting. Wait as the watchman waits. Take up this disposition of a watchman. But here's the trouble with being a watchman. The watchman gets to sit, and they get to look, and they wait, and they anticipate what's to come, but they don't control what's coming. Waiting for the Lord is much the same. The object of our waiting, God himself, is crucial. We're not waiting for something specific to happen so much. We think that maybe we are. We're waiting on God to provide that job. We're waiting on God to provide that healing. We're waiting on God to provide the restoration in whatever relationship we might be thinking of. Or whatever it might be. But really what the psalmist is saying, that might be true, but it's secondary. Really, what are we waiting on? We're waiting on God himself. All those other desires really cannot be met in all those other things. Those desires can only be met truly in God himself. We're not waiting for something specific to happen. We're not even waiting for God's action or God's blessing. We are waiting on God himself. The watchmen wait for the morning, waiting for what is sure, but what they can't do anything to cause or to hasten or to quicken. Think about it. The watchman is standing on a wall. The wall is built on the surface of a ball that is spinning about a thousand miles per hour as it rotates through space. And the watchman is waiting for his side of the ball to spin around until it faces the sun again. Now, how much of the Psalmists understand of all that, I don't know. It really doesn't matter. But they understood as well as we can, you can't do anything to make the sunrise any quicker. You can't do anything to make the night shorter. No watchman can actively get the earth to spin a little faster. There's nothing we can do to earn God's approval. There's nothing we can do to get God to show up for us. The psalmist's hope is in God's word. His hope is in God's promise to rescue and to deliver him. He's like a watchman waiting through the long stretches of the night for morning to come. Now the point here is night is real. The night is dark. The night is long. But even in the midst of a dark, real, long night... And maybe you find yourself this morning, the sun's out right now, but it feels like in the middle of the night to you right now. Because of whatever you're going through, whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever sickness, whatever suffering you might be in the midst of right now, you feel like you're in the middle of the night waiting for the sun to rise. This is what the psalmist was thinking. But even in the midst of that, he says, the sun is rising i got to go back to Tolkien, back to Lord of the Rings. This is Sam talking to Frodo. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. Those are the stories that stayed with you. They meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Except they didn't. They kept on going because they were holding on to something. We are holding on to something. We are holding on to God himself. We're holding on to the fact that God himself has promised himself to us, is with us, has assured us. And so we wait in hope. We wait in hope. And we wait in hope because we wait knowing that God is coming. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. And that leads us to the final cry, which is verses 7 and 8, which is a cry of hope. We all long for hope. We all need hope. We just spent a week, a team of 11 of us, in Atlantic City, and we had the chance to do a variety of ministry, a variety of missions, and hear from uh, multiple pastors and ministry leaders about inner city ministry. And we, one pastor, uh, pastor named pastor, um, McCoy, pastor McCoy, we went to his church in the middle of of, of really the heart of Atlantic City. And he's talking about the thing that people need the most is hope. It's hopelessness that is the real issue. That is manifest in so many other ways through, through the, the uh, job loss and crime and drugs and things like that. But really it's the hope. And that's what this psalm is getting to. We need hope. But we can't just jump straight to hope. You can't just jump in and say, okay, uh, jump in verse 7 and 8, and that's all you read. If that's all the psalm is, we've missed something dramatically. We can't just jump straight there. The psalm walks us through this journey from the depths of suffering to sure hope in God. But even then, we can't just go straight from verse 1 to verse 7. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Israel, hope in the Lord. It doesn't work. We need the full journey from suffering to crying out to God, to repentance and forgiveness, to that sure waiting for the Lord. And then we get that phrase in verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. What is plentiful redemption? This is this rich and full expression And it's actually used nowhere else in Scripture. This is the only place we get that phrase. At the climax of this prayer that the psalmist is praying, this deep, penitent prayer, he sums up the teaching of the entire psalm with this powerful phrase, plentiful redemption. Waiting on the Lord for his steadfast love Is an aspect of that. God's covenant love and faithfulness are promises in which we can hope. Again, that word has been corrupted in our language, I think, more recently. Hope, we, we tend to equate hope with wish. I hope something has happened, same as I wish it would happen. It'd be nice if it happened. But hope, as the Bible uses it, is to look forward to something that is sure to something that is guaranteed, to something that is promised. God's covenant love and faithfulness are promises in which we can hope. This lifts us up out of the pit, out of despair, as we realize that God's character, rather than our need, is the ultimate basis of our standing with God. John Calvin comments, he says this, It is not to be doubted that God, who has it in his power to save by multiplied means, will prove himself the deliverer of the people to whom he has chosen. Plentiful is the redemption of our Lord. And so his salvation goes beyond even the cleansing of our souls. Salvation is not, and redemption is not just dying and going to heaven. That's part of it. But if that's all you get out of the gospel, you've missed a lot. Plentiful redemption is a redemption that heals broken relationships, transforms societies, and will ultimately renew the entire cosmos. The entire universe will be made new. The new heavens and the new earth of Revelation. We cry for help because suffering is real, it's not made up, it's not only in our heads but suffering also shows that things are not right. It shows that I am not right. It shows that I need forgiveness. I need to be made whole. I need to be redeemed. So therefore, we're able to wait in the midst of suffering because we have hope that that redemption is coming. That redemption is not just a far-flung future thing, but that redemption is real and it is happening. It's at the end of this journey that the psalmist is able to turn outward. The entire psalm is not just about him and God. Well, actually, I'm sorry. The entire psalm is just about him and God until you get to the end. Until you get to the last stanza, seven, verses 7 and 8. Once assured in hope, the psalmist is now able to turn outward and address others and encourage them in the truth that he has discovered or perhaps rediscovered. Pastor and evangelist D.T. Niles said evangelism is beggars showing other beggars where we found bread. The Christian message is a message of hope. Is there hope for the hurting? Yes. Is there hope for the helpless? Yes. Is there hope for the sinner? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Those who wait on the Lord wait in hope. Life is full of waiting, but God will never disappoint you. With the Lord is unfailing love. And with the Lord is full, plentiful redemption. As sure as the morning is coming, His redemption is in process, is coming, is real. When we cry out to Christ for mercy. He will hear and He will answer. Christ has never turned anyone away. Who cries out to Him. You may be sunk under a load of sin that you can't even bear to face. You may be crying out to God now from the depths. But God is full of love and mercy. He will hear your voice. And he will be attentive to your prayer. This is the message of the cross. Out, the, 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 the psalmist was looking forward to this plentiful redemption. That plentiful redemption is accomplished fully In the cross of Jesus Christ. That through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and conquering death in his resurrection, Jesus has conquered our worst enemies. Hope is not an abstract idea. Hope is something we look to the cross and we know that death and sin are defeated enemies. And because I am in Jesus, my sin is paid for. The death I deserve to die has already been died. Death is now in its grave where Jesus left it. No matter how bad your situation, no matter how deep the pit, God's love is deeper still. He proved it with the cross. He proved it with Jesus. And he will rescue from the depths those who wait on the Lord, wait in hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would be giving us that hope, that we will be understanding more and more what it means to hope in you. Lord, we know what it is to cry from the depths. Some of us may be there this morning. But Lord, you know. we know that no matter how deep our despair is, it's not too deep for you to reach down to us. We have no hope of climbing out of ourselves, but we know that you can grab us. You do grab hold of us. You pull us out. You proved it at the cross. You proved it with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we pray that we will live for you and serve you now. In Jesus' name, amen.